I am glad that you are all here this morning. Church is, is so important for us. I read a letter, it's uh, been a while since I read it, but it was a letter that uh, was written to an editor of a newspaper, and it complained that there was a complaint that it made no sense for people really to go to church anymore every Sunday. That was his, his premise on writing the letter. And this is what he said. He said, I've gone for 30 years now, and in that time I've heard something like 3,000 sermons, but for the life of me, I can't remember a single one of them. So I think I'm wasting my time. And the preachers are wasting their time for preparing the sermons and giving the sermons at all. So that started a real controversial debate back and forth in the, in the editorial column of the, of the paper, and which the editor really loved because he kept people reading the paper and going in there. And, and then it was finally come to this conclusion when somebody else wrote a rebuttal, and this is what they said. I've been married for 30 years now, and in that time my wife has cooked some 32,000 meals, but for the life of me, I can't remember a single menu for one of those meals. But I do know this, they all nourished me and gave me the strength I needed to do my work. If my wife had not given the, me these meals, I would be physically dead today. Likewise, if I had not gone to church for nourishment, I would be spiritually dead today. So why do we stay away from church? Man, that's a question that, that I've often wondered. I've loved being a part of church my entire life. It's a place I've looked forward to. But some people I've encountered throughout my years in ministry, and even before that, uh, people just don't want to go to church. And they've given me all kinds of excuses, and you've probably heard them. You've probably even given them as to why you can't go to church. And, and I thought I'd come across uh, some different reasons that I'd share with you this morning. Some people feel that they don't need to go to church because they really have no other choice. Their job requires them to work on Sundays, and, and so they have to be there at, at, at work. Otherwise, their boss might not uh, keep them in employment. And they begin to rationalize it by, you know, if I go to church, and, and, and all I get to do is worship and pray and do all those things, and, but my job, I go there, and, and I get paid for that. Surely God will understand, you know, that I've got to work in order to pay my bills. Others, they, they don't spend all day on their job, and so they don't really have to work on Sunday, but... I've heard them tell me, it's my only day off. It's the only day I have an opportunity to sleep in. It's the only day that I can go shopping. The only day that I can go work on the car. The only day that I have that I can actually mow the lawn. And so they come up with all these excuses why they got other priorities that have to take place. And Sunday is the only day in which they can do it. Taking time to go to church could mess up your whole weekend plans. Maybe others, they stay away because... There's one of the members of the church or leader of the church has gone and gotten cross-eyed with them and they no longer feel comfortable there and they feel it's going to be just a confrontation so they don't want to show up there and they figure if that's what the church is like, I don't want to have any part of it. Others, they stay away from church because they just feel plain uncomfortable there. They tried going to church on Sunday, but they, they kind of felt out of place. You know, everybody knows when to stand and when to sit and how to sing and how not to sing. And they know all the different ins and outs of what the church does. When they take the communion, do I eat it now or do I hold it on for later? Do I, what do I, do I share it with somebody? I, I don't know what I'm doing here. And so they, they just feel uncomfortable. And that uncomfortableness makes them feel like, I don't want to experience that again. So why go back to a situation that kind of makes you feel awkward? 
Or maybe they have a very different reason for feeling awkward and staying away from the church that they've actually belonged to maybe for many years. Maybe it's because they've been a part of this church for so long and now they've really messed up. They've done something that people, they're going to talk about. And they're going to want to ask me why I did that or why I didn't do that or all those. And I just don't want to feel questioned when I show up at church. So I'm just going to stick around until it kind of blows over. But the reality is, sticking around until it blows over, maybe it never will. Especially when you don't go to church. And we just can't bear to face people because they know who I am and what I've done. Now, if you think that church is really a private matter, and I think that's what we've been being told lately. A lot of people in in our society there, they want you to recognize that your faith is your faith. And and it's just yours, and it's your private thing. You don't have to share that with anybody, and really don't share it with me. And if it's a private affair, it's just kind of this me and Jesus kind of thing, then you really don't need the church after all. And so you, you say to yourself, who needs the church to be a good Christian? I can be a good Christian and, and, and do what God, God wants me to do without having to go there all the time. But I want to share with you a few things. First off, when we look at the Scripture, the Bible calls the church the household of God. And we see that in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. He says, so then you are no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So we're part of his household, but it goes even beyond just that because sometimes you have strangers living in your household. You know, they may be your cousins or whoever they are, but they've moved in, so they're kind of family, but sometimes you allow people to come in. But the Bible also tells us that not only are we part of the household of God, but we are part of God's family. Ephesians chapter 3 has something to say about that in verses 14 and 15 when it says that for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So we take his name. I'm a Wagner. You may be a Collins or a Fisher or who knows what else. But we have this family name that's important to us. But we are part of the family of God and we bear the name of God upon us. We are made within His image, and a part of the church is the family of God. And it's home for all of us who belong to God. And if you stay away from church too long, you're either running away from home, or you're really not a part of God's family at all. Another reason is this. The Bible tells us that the church is the bride of Christ. We see that in the book of Ephesians chapter 5, and I think Paul Tripp will have some things to say about this because a lot of us like to look at this passage and we, we view the relationship between the husband and wife, and Paul has some wise words on how we're supposed to live as husband and wife. But he says, but this is a great mystery. You think I'm talking about a husband and wife, but in reality I'm talking about Christ and His church, the bride. And so the church of God is also the bride of Christ. And Revelation demonstrates that as the bride of Christ is dressed and is ready for her wedding day and she comes down out of heaven ready for that moment to be joined with Him. And we are that bride. But the Bible also calls the church the body of Christ. Now in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes to the church there in Corinth and he tries to get them to understand they need each other because they're a part of the body. Listen to what he says in verse 27. He says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. 
Each Christian is a part of the body of Christ. And obviously, for any body part to be alive, it has to be attached to the body. You can't sever the hand from the body and let it be on its own because eventually it's going to wither up and it's going to die. It needs the rest of the body for it to survive and to live. Well, you see, the body of Christ is the same way. If you're a Christian, you need to be attached to the body. You can't go on your own. God Himself calls us to be a part of His church. And just in those aspects, you know, that we're the household, we're the family, we're the bride, and we're the body of Christ. And He wants us to be a part of that. And He wants us to, to recognize the beauty of being a part of the church. Because what Jesus does is He makes us look good. I mean, that's important. You, know, you may wake up all disheveled with your hair a mess and your skin's wrinkled where you slept on your pillow wrong, but in Ephesians it tells us that he, he presents us as a radiant church, beautiful, spotless, without wrinkle or stain or blemish or any other mark on us. And he presents us to the world as someone that is pure and holy. This is his bride. But we know who we truly are. And we ask ourselves, why church? Well, I think those four reasons are great. Because the church is the household of God. It is the, it is the family of God. It is the bride of Christ. It is the body of Christ. And even at our ugliest point in life as a church, Jesus still loves us. And we need Him. And we need the body. The Bible makes it clear that when people put their faith in Jesus and they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they just don't go their separate ways. They hang together and they work together for a common good. They become part of the church uh, through, through their relationship with Him, through their baptism, which is their initiation into the church because we're being buried into His name and we take on His name, we take on His image. We're created to be a new creation in Him. No longer are we ourselves, but we now are His. Paul even goes so far to say, it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. So how can I separate myself from that? The Bible tells us in the book of Acts, the second chapter, this is just after the day of Pentecost when Peter preached that wonderful sermon and 3,000 men were baptized into Jesus' name. And the church begins. And so what do they do when they begin? It tells us in verse 42. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. So in just that one sentence, I think we have some marvelous fourfold answer to the question of why church. Well, first, there's teaching. Second, there's fellowship. Third, there is the breaking of bread. And fourth, there's prayer. So those are the four things I want us to look at this morning. To begin with, the apostles' teaching. That's the first thing that goes on within the church when it gathers together. We've devoted ourselves to the apostles' teaching. And in the time of the New Testament church, when it was beginning... The apostles were present, they were active, they were alive, and they moved around from town to town, from city to city, meeting with the churches and sharing with them the wonderful stories in which they learned and experienced at the feet of Jesus. And so they were sharing with them His teachings, and the apostles, they were looking forward to these opportunities to share with them. And so ongoing it was. Today we know the apostles are no longer here, but we still have their writings 
within the Word of God itself. The Bible, we'll find in the New Testament, there are all these, these letters that were written to the churches by the apostles to share with them what Jesus wants us to know about how we should live on a day-to-day -day basis and how we should get along with one another and what our purpose and our, our objectives are as a church. They teach us to gr this great plan and purpose of God and it, it unfolds before us in the history of salvation for the world. Every church that is truly Christian spends time in the Word of God teaching each other to understand it. And so from that we get the revelation of who Christ is. In Ephesians, that second chapter, remember what it said in verse 19 and 20, we're members of the household of God. And then it goes on and says, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. You see, what's going on is we have to come together so that we can teach one another about Jesus. We come together so we can lay a foundation on which the church is built. And I know about foundations, and sometimes you've not been really prepared the best foundation for your household. You know, when the, the rains come or when the drought comes and everything, the house begins to settle and it begins to shift. And if a foundation is not built properly, it cracks, it splits and all of a sudden you notice cracks in the walls or in the ceilings and your house begins to settle inappropriately. But the foundation of the church on which it is built is Jesus Christ. And He is the chief's cornerstone in that. And it does not break up. It does not fracture. It does not split. It is something that is solid that we can put our hopes and our faith in. And every church that is truly Christian understands that. They build their lives on the truth. And Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, that the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. Now that word buttress is also translated in some of the other uh, translations of our English language into the word ground or foundation. And so let's read that again. The members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which is their teaching. Or no, sorry, I'm at the wrong. In the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and foundation of truth. So it says the church is the pillar and the foundation. Here's where we come to understand the teachings of the apostles. Do we get our foundation that's established and secure so that we don't have to worry about life? But a lot of people think, okay, so maybe I do need the apostles' teachings. But I can get that by sitting on my comfortable couch at home, watching TV or listening to the radio, because they got great preachers out there, you know, that I can, I can interact with. Well, at least I can hear preach to me. And, and I can go online to the Internet, and I can pull up preacher sermons that they, that they said, you know, months ago or years ago, and I can listen to these and fill myself full of all this wonderful knowledge of the apostles' teaching. But something is still missing. You don't get the full benefit of the church when you're sitting by yourself on your comfy couch watching TV and having someone preach to you there. There's something that is still missing. It's just not about listening to the apostles' teaching somewhere. It has to deal with the aspect of the togetherness, answering the questions and listening and interacting with one another. The people, when they come together, they worship God together. Not only do they worship God together, they confess their need for God and the forgiveness of their sins. And the local church, 
when they have their Bible instruction time, whether it be what we classify as small groups or Sunday school or, or a worship service where there's interaction, and, and there has to be something that you rely upon the Word of God. And there's where you find that the media ministries can't reach. Now, I'm, I'm all for having the preachers on the radio or putting it on the Internet. We even record our sermons here and put them on the Internet. And, and we have a program called Right Now Ministries that we've connected our church with. And so even in your home, you can bring up all kinds of devotional studies and movies and, 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 and music videos and, and sermons and conference speakers and all that. They bring it in. You can learn all kinds of things, and that's good. But you're still missing something when you're not sitting face-to-face with one another. So let's consider the next aspect, what kind of ties right into that, which is that of fellowship. The church is a special community where there is a fellowship among believers, and that is vital. Last night we had a game night, and there was no Bible study that went along with it. We, we didn't all bring our Bibles and try to find, you know, word search. It wasn't that. It was just a game night, a night in which we could come together in fellowship and just relax and let our hair down. Well, some of you let your hair down. The rest of us, we walked around and harassed everybody who had their hair down, right? So that's the way it was. But we get together. We enjoy just a time of fun. We've got the fishing tournament coming up. I remember uh, one of the guys was talking about that, uh, that somebody came, and they normally go fishing with a bunch of guys who like to drink and cuss and swear and do all kinds of things. But they actually came to this church fishing event last summer, and they said, you all have fun. There's laughter. There's all this without all the drinking, with all the cussing. This was great. The fellowship is important, and fellowship is something that we need if we're going to be a part of a church, and that is something that you cannot get on TV or through the Internet. You don't get the interaction with people. Talk with a fellow years ago. And he, he had quit going to church, and it wasn't at our church, it was another church in the community, and, and, and I had a conversation with him, and he was trying to convince me that you don't need the church to worship God. And I thought, well, no, you, you know, I think you need to really reconsider that. He says, ah, he says I, I get good sermon preaching on Sunday morning when I watch the TV, and it's right there for me. I don't need to go to church for that. I, you know, I, me and God, we can worship together. And, and I said, well, I understand, but you, know, you need to really consider the other things that you're missing out on. He didn't want to hear it. He was upset with the way the church was and, and how they had treated him. And so he was going to have his own church there at his own house. A few years later, I met him at his wife's funeral. And in that conversation that I had with him there, he said, you know, he said, remember the conversation we've had about me not wanting or needing the church? I said, yeah, I remember. Because I was wrong. He says, I, I need it. He says, is it the TV preacher? He didn't come and pray with me when my wife died. He didn't hold me and comfort me. He didn't even show up for the funeral visitation or the funeral. But the church people did. They came and they loved on me. And they prayed for me. And they're here for me. He says, and I was wrong. I need the church because those other things, they can't do it for me. I'm missing out on that. We need fellowship. When you're facing serious illness or loss of a loved one or financial struggles, or there's a variety of things we have problems in life in. It's when you come to the church and there in the fellowship of the church that we are there for one another. We meet each other's needs. And believe me, I know that churches have their faults. We're not perfect. You hired me. Yeah, but I came here. <laughs> We understand we got problems. We know we're not perfect. 
But a lot of times that's the thing that the people in our world shove down our throat. It's just a place filled with hypocrites. But that's where the hypocrite needs to be so he can learn not to be a hypocrite. We need one another. We understand that the, the fellowship of, the, of, of all sinners, we, we still have plenty of changing to do, but we're doing it together. We help hold accountable to one another as we grow in Christ. Time and time again, I've heard people facing crisis tell me, now I really know what the family of God is all about because they're there for us in these times. The church's fellowship does more than get us through times of crisis. Christians devoted themselves to the fellowship because the church, the whole, is greater than just the one. Like a body, the church has many different parts. Each part is so unique in and of itself, but it is required to be a part of it. And here we have this aspect in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14 through 20, and he writes out for us this, this idea of the church being a body. Let's look at what it has to say. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. The foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ears should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would make it not, not make it any less part of the body. And if the whole body were an eye, Mike Wisnowski, where would the rest of the sense of the smell be? But as it is, and if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? As it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as He chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And I think it's a good thing that God set up all of us in different abilities and gifts and skills and personalities. Because we need each other to be strengthened as a whole. This morning I got out of bed. I don't know what I've done wrong, but now all of a sudden I've got this nerve that's pinched in my ankle. And I recognize it every time I take a step. It just shoots a little pain in there, and I've been trying to help it but the rest of my body, every time I do it, attention goes there. And so I want to keep my feet off of standing on it. And I'm being gentle with it. And, and the rest of my foot tries to help, my toes help, my heel helps, you know, try and rotate a little bit so that nerve doesn't keep getting pinched. And so our body recognizes that when one part is hurting, we give it attention. When your stomach is grumbling, you feed it. And if the church is a part of the body and each one of us has an aspect of who we are and what we do, when one of us is hurting, the rest ought to recognize it. That's what the body of Christ is to do. We're to be there to help... Help that other that's got that pain in their life to ease up that burden just a little bit so that they don't have to worry about it. We're, we're supposed to be there for one another. And we can't say, well, you know, I really am not needed. Can you imagine if I cut my hand off and it, it wanted to be on its own because it doesn't need the rest of the body? What's going to happen to it? It's, it's going to shrivel up and eventually die. But if I can reattach it quickly, it will thrive again. But we think we can separate ourselves from the church, the body of Christ, and still live and thrive 
without becoming spiritually dead. See, it applies, the aspects of the body apply to how the church is. God brings together many unique individuals gifted in different ways so that we can help one another out. The Bible also puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21 through 27. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And the unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which are more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member differs or suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. If one member, he says, now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. So in order for us to live and to grow and to be healthy and to be strong, we need each other. I need you. You need me. You need the person sitting next to you or behind you or in front of you. We need each other in order for us to be strong in life, to live vibrantly. We can't shut each other down. We've got to recognize that, yes, we are different, but that is how God has made us indispensable. You see, we need this fellowship together. It isn't just me and Jesus. It's we and Jesus. We need each other. And when Christians devote themselves not only to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, that's when things happen, and God benefits us as a whole because of it. And just the God-given abilities that we have, and they accomplish many great things. The need for fellowship so that we can be also accountable to one another. Hebrews tells us in the 10th chapter, beginning in verse 24, he says that we need to consider how we can stir up one another. That's where we stop, right? <laughs> we like to stir one another up. I enjoyed harassing people last night at the game night. You know, hey, you got a, you got a place you put a couple of tiles down there. you got more words you can spell, you know, in Scrabble. Ah, uh, yeah, until they drug me in and made me play games too, you know. But we need each other. We need each other. But he says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meeting together, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So until Jesus actually gets here, which is that day that is drawing near, we need to challenge one another to love and to work together and to do good things in this world. We have to be there to hold each other accountable for that. And when we get tired and discouraged and trying to follow Christ, we need a boost from other people to let us know that we need to keep going so that we don't fall away into sin. We need to be often at times confronted by others. And it involves more than just showing up on Sunday morning. It means really getting to know one another. You see, when the first church started gathering together, they'd only met at the temple and worshipped, but then they met in each other's homes 
daily. When was the last time you had somebody from church in your home? Seriously. When was the last time you invited the body of Christ to go home with you? To get to know you? To understand who you are outside of these walls? When was the last time you've been to somebody else's house? You see, that's what they did. They knew each other. They understood each other. They, they knew the good habits, the bad habits, the likes, the dislikes. They knew everything about each other because they spent time with each other. And as a result of that, God caused their number to grow daily. Those who are putting their faith in Jesus. The church is a setting for loving fellowship and relationships where we can stop thinking about ourselves and start concerning ourselves with Christ and others. John tells us this in John chapter 13. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. And by this, by the way we're loving one another, he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But how can you love somebody if all you see them is on TV? Or hear them through the radio? Or you see them at church on Sunday, but you never talk with them? You know, it ought to be that people walk in and out of this facility on Sunday morning, on Tuesday night, on Wednesday evening, or whenever it is that you're gathered together, you make sure that you interrupt life and you get to know one another. The fellowship is important. And Jesus says, this is a new command. Now, we know all about the Ten Commandments. And he says, I'm going to give you a new command. This is a command. You love one another as I have loved you. You love one another. And people will understand that you belong to me because they see how you love each other. So why church? Well, so far we've talked about being able to hear the gospel's teaching. We've talked about the fellowship. The third aspect is the breaking of bread. Now, we've already done that today. That's the aspect of communion, the Lord's Supper. So we come together for the breaking of bread to, to participate in this Lord's Supper. And we eat the pieces of this unleavened bread and we drink uh, of, of this, this fruit of the vine. And, and we remember the body and the blood of Jesus that was broken and shed for our sins. That's, that's what he asked us to do, to do that in remembrance of whenever we come together. My goodness, we ought to be doing this every day. But sometimes people say you're doing too much of it, so we shouldn't have it every Sunday, maybe once a quarter, once a month, once a year, so it doesn't lose its significance. I like to breathe, and, and I think it's a significant thing that I breathe. But if I only breathe once a day or once a month, I'm going to die. I need to be able to relate to what Jesus did on a daily basis in my life. That's what holds me accountable to living the way he wants me to live, to remember the sacrifice that he made. And when I take that piece of bread, I don't care if I've got friends over and we're going to have supper together. We need to focus on that Jesus is the reason we're gathering together. We are connected and united because of him. Just life does that. And that as a result of what he has done, we now have our salvation. We have to remember that his body was broken. His blood, I mean, it poured from his body to the floor and to the ground below that cross. Those soldiers who whipped him, well, that blood splattered all over them. 
the sacrifice of the Old Testament. They would take the blood of that lamb and they would literally sprinkle it on the people and then on the altar. His blood was shed for us so that we understand what forgiveness is all about. We've got to come together and never let that be an absent part of the body of Christ because it was broken. His blood was shed. A living faith isn't just a matter of thinking about Jesus. A living faith feasts on Jesus again and again. Listen to what he says about this. In John chapter 6, verse 54, and 50, or 54 through 56, he says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Why is it that churches don't want to participate in that anymore? We come together as a body of Christ significantly because we want to sit around the Lord's table and we want to remember who He is and what He has done. And you don't do that on your own in the woods. You have to be a part of the body of Christ and gather together. The Lord's Supper isn't just some visual aid or a meaningless ritual. It's a spiritual feast that we come to participate in and we cannot afford to miss it. And that was one of the reasons why the church gathered together was to partake of the Lord's Supper. So why church? Because of the significance of what Jesus has done for us. One of his final prayers was that you and I would have unity, that we would be together as one, with one heart, with one voice, with one life, his life. And as our mouths take in the bread and the juice, our souls take in the living Christ and the offering that He gave for us. The final thing is this, prayer. Christians in the New Testament, they got together because they wanted to pray. I mean, we see that over and over and over again throughout the book of Acts. We see that written in the letters that Paul wrote to the church and Peter wrote to the church and John and James and Jude. They want the church to pray. And so when we gather together, one of the things that we do is we pray. It's important that we pray. You, you might ask yourself, why go to church to pray? I can pray by myself just fine. Personal prayer is important. And sometimes your personal prayer ought to be so intimate that you go into the closet, you close the door, and you don't let anybody know that you're there. But the church is called to come together and to pray together. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, verses 19 through 20, Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So why church? Because it is the church when they gather together and they pray that God answers them. We've got a prayer team here at church, and you'll see some of them. They're wearing a lanyard with a little badge that says prayer team. And they're willing to pray for you. You've got something that you need just to be lifted up before Him. Stop them before you get out of here. And they'll pray with you at that very moment. We've established a prayer team that, that sends prayers out through Facebook and through the emails and through whatever aspect of way that we can to communicate that people are needing prayer. We need to start praying for one another daily, 
hourly, moment by moment, lifting each other. And when we come together, he says, when we come together and we both are agreeing, or three of us or four of us or however many of us come together and we agree about something, he listens and he answers our prayer because he is right there with us in agreement on it. Prayer is powerful. It is more powerful thing. And sometimes people say, well, it's the least I can do is pray for you. I wish I could do more. The best that you can do for somebody is pray for them. Prayer is why the church gathers together. Listen again in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. They were there that night praying all night long because Peter had been arrested and he is in prison now. In the middle of the night, right in their praying session, they get interrupted because an angel has gone to that prison. He has shaken the walls and opened the doors and led Peter out in the middle of the night. And there he stands knocking on their door because they didn't have doorbells at that time. And, and the young lady opens the door. She sees him. She screams. She shuts the door and runs back in. What's going on? Peter's there. We're praying for Peter. What do you mean he's there? He's in prison. No, he's down there at the door. God answers prayer when we gather together. We need to be a church that continually prays and lifts one another up because he moves when we are united together in that thought. Acts 2 goes on to tell about all the energy in that church that they experienced great miracles. That the Christians were, were selling their property, their goods, and they were bringing it to the church and sharing it with one another so they had nothing to, no needs amongst one another. And every day they were praising God in the temple, and then they were taking those people that finally put their faith in Christ and took them home with them. And they ate dinner with them, and they shared more, and they met, and they mingled. And the Lord kept adding to their number daily those who were being saved. And still today, whatever its faults may be, and I think there are many, because it's filled up with you and me, the church is a vital part of being a Christian. When you read about the New Testament church, sometimes we might be something to say, oh, I'd love to go to church like that. But you keep reading through the book of Acts, and you pick up some of the other letters that are written to the church, and you discover they were a mess. I mean, there was false teaching going on in the church. There, was, there were people who were stingy with their finances. There were people who were very proud and arrogant. And they, I sit up front because I've got more money than you. And, and they were doing all these things just like people are today. They struggled. They had problems. They even had people who were living in sin, and they were very proud that they were coming to worship with them. And we think the church back then was perfect. It wasn't. And the church today isn't perfect because if it were perfect, you and I would not be in it. But the church of God is holy because He makes it holy. It's not because we're in it. We're not perfect, but He is. See, every church has its problems, of course. But even those where God is, is very much at work, the church is still struggling. But we ought not present ourselves better than what we really are. We need to demonstrate to the world around us, yeah, we struggle. And we are being daily crafted by the Spirit to look more and more and more like Jesus. But we do that as iron sharpens iron. One man in faith sharpening another man in faith. We build each other up. So I'm going to wrap this all up. And if you all want to begin to come up. 
There are four things I think that we need to do. The first one is this. You need to live expectantly. You need to live just with anticipation that God is going to do great things in your life. We need, we need to understand that when we pray and expect that He's going to hear our prayers and He's going to answer them. And as you walk through your day, you need to, don't attempt to manufacture some, some phony spirituality. Allow Him to really craft and create in you that which is holy. And it will happen. And, and if you expect it, He's going to show up and do something. The second thing is we need to watch actively. I mean, I think that's the key to the whole experience is, is our observations and our attentiveness to this. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 11 and 12 describes for us in the life of Elijah. He has just been up on that Mount Carmel and God has demonstrated how powerful and wonderful he is by defeating the, the prophets of Baal and sending fire from heaven. And as he's standing there in all the midst of this, Ahab went back and told his wife Jezebel what had gone on. And she says, send this message to Elijah. May God deal with me ever so severely if he's still living tomorrow by this time. I'm coming to get him. <clears throat> so Elijah ran off of that mountain down to Beersheba and he hid himself underneath a gum tree. And he's there crying out to God, God, just let me die. I don't want to live any longer. They're out to get me and this everything. I'm the only one who's left. And, and God's like, what's going on? Who do you think you are? You head down to the mountain there, Mount Horeb, and I'll talk with you and I'll show you who I am. You want to see me? I'll show you. And so he takes his 40-day journey down to the mountain, down to the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula, Mount Horeb. He climbs up in that mountain, he hides in a cave, and God says, I'm coming. And listen what happens. It says, and he said to go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke the piece of rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And Elijah is called to go out and to stand and wait for the voice of God and to let his gentle spirit be his guide. I think too often I'm waiting for those magnificent moments. For the wind just to shake things up and for the mountains to explode with their earthquakes and for the fire to come and just to purify everything. And God says, you're not even listening. And He speaks sometimes in the most intimate fashions, the softest voice of whisper. And it's in those moments that God shows who He truly is. You see, we've got to live anticipating, expecting that God is going to do something in this church and in our lives. And we have got to wait and to watch actively for His movement in all of this. But the final thing is we need to reflect wholeheartedly because when those wonderful gentle whispers happen in our lives, we need to make sure to say thank you to God. Right then and right there. And it doesn't have to be a huge celebration. Sometimes it's just that moment of pausing and stopping and just saying thank you. Thank you. Our prayers don't have to be forced. It's those moments when God sets His Spirit alive in us. And we recognize who He is and what He's done. 
I've heard a lot of reasons why we should not go to church. Searching through the internet this week, and I found a, a site that's, that's made by Tim Arndt. He's an associate minister at the Islandale Baptist Church up in Michigan. And he has done some research, and I put together a little booklet of his, of his uh, research. 28 reasons, biblical reasons, why you should go to church. People are always giving us reasons why we shouldn't. Well, these will give you some good reasons Bible-wise is why you should. They're out here at the connection table, and if you want to pick one up, take home, use those, read through these. Now you have rebuttal to people when they say, I don't want to go to church. And they give you all excuses. Here's your excuses as to why you have to go, why God wants you. We're going to have an invitation for you this morning. Maybe you've not been a part of the church. Maybe you've never really fully accepted Christ as Lord. You've never been baptized and united with Him and become a part of the body of Christ. Man, today would be a wonderful opportunity to start. Maybe you just need to recommit yourself to this body of believers here. To actively become a part of who we are. So that, so that we know that you're hurting when you're hurting. And then we know that you're celebrating when something wonderful is taking place with you and we can just rejoice with you. But we need to be so much involved in each other's lives. But we can only do that with willing hearts. Will you stand? Will you sing with me?